Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. What up, everyone? This is the second part of the episode we recorded with Mike Cunningham a few weeks ago, where we were discussing about M&A and how to sell a company. In the first part, in the first episode, we discussed up to the point where you're contacted and you are discussing the terms and negotiating the terms with the potential acquirer of your company. And in this second episode that we have recorded just today, we'll be going over more deep into the negotiation itself, what happens when you accept, what happens when some people, some companies are withdrawing their offers, what the do's and don'ts, uh, what happens with communication with the team, who needs to take the leadership here and there, how to coordinate with your M&A boutique so that you don't impact the the companies twice and that creates interference or that creates you know some rookie maybe that gives some rookie signals to the potential acquirers uh, so other mistakes that first time entrepreneurs do in their MA processes and finally what happens when you get audited through the due, due diligence and when your company is finally sold right from moving from letter of intentions to the final merging document confirming the operation right so i hope you enjoyed this episode Mike, how are hey, you? Very good, good Alex. Good to be good, back. Good to be back after <laughs> after like I think three weeks ago we recorded the first part of this episode, yeah. and you've had very big news in your life, right? Yeah, yeah. We well, we had yeah we got delayed a number of times. I think was it the first one because of the alarm in the streets, and then yeah, and then the second <laughs> one was we had a, a new child. So uh, and it was a surprise because actually the due date was not until mid-March. So I think the due dates was like March 14th, but the right. baby arrived the 21st of February. So uh, big surprise, everything great, wow. but healthy baby, healthy mother, everybody, you know, everything going really well. It's just a surprise that was unexpected. <laughs> I was kind of had everything planned for March, you know, 10th, 14th, 20th, that this would be happening. And then it came three weeks early. So very exciting. Very, I mean, everyone's super happy, but it's just changed the schedule in unexpected ways. Happy for you, man. Um, you. Let's let's pick up from where we left off. Last time I remember, so basically for, for listeners who might be getting this for the first time, we actually recorded an episode of this, uh, of this podcast about this very same topic. Um, but we only made it to halfway through the sale process, yeah. right? <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, we definitely need a second part of this. So we were talking about M&A. So we talked about how to be approached by companies, how to react, what's the protocol, how to take the meetings, how to communicate, how to maybe hide this from the team or communicate to the team, how to sit to the table with and yeah. get the letter of intentions. And basically, we just made it to that point. We didn't even talk about the M&A per se, right? I take it to yeah. the whole process right um so today we're going to be talking about the negotiation part accepting the offer what happens when you accept what happens when maybe you don't accept or somebody withdraws the offer and the, the next day right because yeah. we, we we did uh, we have had some hints about this in the previous episode um mike let's start let's start with this we left it at letters of intention right if you've yeah. got a few over the table we basically you said that it's good to have a broker to bring as many options to the table to increase the price because we're yeah. trying to figure out the price of our company but i think within this case one thing that's really important is how do you actually value your company internally right yeah so, I mean, yeah, the valuing of the company is, you know, there can be many ways to do it. You know, the traditional ways are either looking at comparable transactions, looking at comparable public companies, although obviously those companies are quite a bit different in many, not just in size, but in products. Um, you can do discounted cash flow. Um, you can do kind of a replacement value. I've seen some people do, although that's, that's it's kind of if you were to, redo the technology from point zero and, and um, you know, kind of create the company from point zero, how much would all this cost? And I think that's kind of the least relevant of all of them. So the main ways to, to value the company are typically DCF, discounted cash flow, comparable multiples, 
And the multiples, can, again, can either be on public companies or transactions that have happened in the market. And when it comes down to, though, I mean, the real value of the company is what somebody is willing to pay. So, you know, yeah. you can do all this stuff, you know, you can spend a lot <laughs> of time. cliche, but it's right, right? <laughs> you can spend a lot of time on valuation. And I'm not saying spending some time on valuations is a waste of time. I think it's good, but a founder should not have it in his or her mind that, oh, I did an exercise that said my company's valued at 25 million. Therefore, I, I, I won't accept anything less than that because that would be, a, you know, a bad sale, you know, or a bad transaction. And really like the, the valuations really to kind of give you an idea because there's no way your company, especially startups and technology companies are so unique that any valuation way to do it is, is very, is imperfect in many ways. So if, if the valuation comes out at 25 million, what that really means is like 15 to 35 million, something like that. You know, I think that's kind of what somebody should have in their head. And it's even possible that there won't be an offer or, you know, nobody's interested, you know, sadly that that can happen usually does not happen or that the offer comes in above all of that at, at 40 million or something like that. So it's, I think it's, I think it's, you know, good to do. So people are, you know, have an idea and can be somewhat grounded in the transaction, but, but it's not, I, I don't think it, sh it should be a major decision criteria um, it should be one of the factors taken into account, certainly not, you know, the biggest one, but the, you know, kind of professional valuations are, are done usually in Excel documents and, and, you know, many different worksheets. Um, one is DCF, one maybe comparable publics, one comparable um, private company sales. And, and, and that's, you know, again, it is, it is what it is. It's one factor. And I guess the last thing I would compart on this topic is that, in my opinion, the, the comparable transactions, if there are relevant ones, if there are comparable transactions that took place where the selling company or the company that got acquired is very similar to yours, then that, for me, is the most important criteria. So, for okay. example, you know, if, um, you know, Cabify versus Uber versus... What's the other one? You know, Lyft. there's many, there's many of Lyft. Exactly. So you've got, you know, there's probably many others in small countries that we don't even know about, you know, maybe in, in, in you know, they're kind of the smaller versions. Yeah. So, so for example, a, a, an acquisition of one of these would be very relevant for the other parties. So when, you know, Uber being the leader is going to be a bit different, but for example, if, if an Uber copy in Colombia gets sold for, one and a half times revenue or, you know, X amount times EBITDA, that's going to be very relevant for the Uber copy that gets, you know, that is thinking about going to sale in Chile or uh, Brazil yeah. or whatever. So I think, you know, if you can find a very good comparable transaction, ideally many good comparable transactions. So ideally in this example, you'd have, you know, Colombia got sold, maybe the one in, um, you know, Bolivia, you know, in this case, maybe all in the Latin America region, but, you know, maybe there's one in Asia that got sold as well. And you can kind of do an average of these and see what the multiples are. This for me is, is the most relevant uh, metric as far as valuation goes. Great. But, and that would be for startups. But then again, all the companies who are outside the realm of, start, of startups, say like agencies, for instance, in our case, you wouldn't be measuring this or the valuation wouldn't be measured like that precisely, right? Or companies in the biotech sector, they would be, willing to weigh in they, their pay, uh, patents and uh, something like yeah, that, more yeah, like technology, yeah. right? So, so um, agencies, what other things could we take into consideration? What other things could we add to the mix? I, I would push back a little bit on your comment about agencies. So the more unique the yeah. company is, basically the more this, um, this way of evaluating, doing the valuation is flawed. So if the company is super unique, it's a biotech that's, you know, has a cure for some disease that nobody's ever come up with, you know, yeah. we don't know what the probability that it actually is a cure is, you know, they're still doing clinical trials, you know, that is an incredibly unique situation. So it's going to be hard to find great comparables for that. So there's, you know, doing evaluation in general on something like that and any using any of the, the methodologies is going to be very challenging. Agencies, I would say, you know, a lot of agencies get bought and sold and, you know, your agency 
you know, all agencies are probably unique to some degree, but it's kind of like M&A boutiques. My need gets bought and sold as well. (laughs) And, you know, and it's, I think we're unique, but I mean, are we, are we, you know, but we get bought by team They're very like if, if we were larger, we would be acquired because they want to have our clients. Right. Yeah. It's not very likely. I mean, um, you know, because m- most likely we're working for clients that 10 other companies are working for. Right. If we're working for HP, say, yeah, uh, we're, we're vendor for HP. Right. <laughs> There's a thousand other vendors for HP. It's like uh, well, you're yeah. not going to get the exclusivity on that account, but they might want your team, which is something unique you've got. But yeah. we don't have own technology, right? So, yeah. So now you were getting into a slightly different topic, which is kind of the value of the team, you know, which is a key yeah. aspect of value. You know, some companies have really great technology. Some have a business model that's just cranking out profits. Others have a really good team. And, you know, everybody has some mix of these cat aspects. Not everybody has the technology, but everybody has a mix of kind of team value versus good business model versus profitability versus revenues. Also there's growth, you know, so somebody could have the exact same mix of all these elements, but growing at 5% a year, whereas one of their competitive competitors is very similar growing at 60% a year, obviously a very different value for that company growing 60% a year. So there's, you know, bottom line is valuations are imperfect um, exercises. um, And, you know, there's a lot of factors to take into account. It should be used as kind of one of many things for guidance, you know, for the founder, not, you know, oh, my advisor or my accountant, whoever did the valuation come up, came up with this number, maybe Deloitte, some consultancy. Therefore, that's what the value of my company is. No, that's actually not the value of your company. That's one kind of one piece of evidence pointing in one direction. But, you know, the value of anybody's company is when you do a big when you do a kind of a, a major transaction process, reach out to many potential buyers and see what the what the highest bid is. That's the value of your company. Really, it only it only appears once the company is sold, which maybe yeah. is a little bit frustrating for some people. But you know that's just the way it is. And I think you know people are used to like the stock market, which is a highly efficient market. There's millions of buyers and sellers. Buying and selling a company is a, is a quite inefficient market. You, oh. The way to make it as efficient as possible is to reach, you know, have as many people at the table as possible. That's by far in the founder's best interest to have, you know, as many offers as they can get. But even in that case, you know, there's it's not it's not nearly as liquid or as efficient as many other markets. This is probably a very generic question, but since you touched this subject, I want to get into it just for this uh, for this question, then we'll move on to, to the part of the ne- negotiation and accepting the, the offer and whatnot. As, uh, so valuation of the team, right? I know it requires a separate episode. Maybe we're going to do that. Yeah. We, we don't know, right? Sure. But, um, but I think, I think it's, it's interesting to know at least what's the framework, right? Because I remember when I was in, when I was in um, well, every year I go to, to San Francisco, right? For the Startbrand Global Conference. I remember, yeah. um, Talking to, to some people, and I think it was the very same year that we were, you know, hosting these discussions that I, I commented on the the previous part of the podcast that we wanted to, you know, somebody wanted to acquire us, and and very like so somebody in the conversation came out like you know he was a VC if I remember correctly said something oh you should get at least a million per developer I was like. Yeah. What? <laughs> All right. So these are the numbers in California, perhaps. Yeah, I don't think yeah, these are yeah. the numbers here. So how would you calculate? Because like let's assume you've got more or less a similar team, like a very homogeneous team, right? Yeah. No super senior VCs, no super like okay, a pretty <laughs> homogeneous team. How would you go about that? Yeah, so it's you know, to be totally so I'll be, you know, I'll come out with another, you know, being very transparent. Most companies are not valued on the team. So most mm-hmm. companies are valued much more on, you know, what the business is doing, you know, if they're yes. profitable. And I think, you know, these team valuations are much more common with very early stage companies that maybe, you know, a buyer that's will all look they at have. them. Yeah. Well, buyer will look at them and be like, wow, they really don't have much traction. They're not really doing too much, but man, they've got a really, they seem like a very talented team. Maybe the yeah. people with the great universities, MIT, or maybe, the, you know, they just seem super sharp in the conversations or whatever. And then they kind of put, they put a value around that. And the team issue is, 
you know, it's a sensitive issue in the sense that, you know, many times we've seen key team players get picked off. So, you know, yeah. for example, a company that I was working with, they had um, two or three of their most talented engineers picked off by Apple. And it was, and it was kind of Apple was one of the parties that they wanted to talk to about a potential acquisition of their company, but Apple was picking off the best people and, you know, all of their knowledge so they can kind of recreate what they did with the previous company for Apple, you know, and I'm sure they had NDAs for the, I would hope that they had, I don't remember. I think Maybe I they didn't. At the time. <laughs> Maybe they did have NDAs, but still they can create new things. You know, they're very smart. They can create something that's a bit different, but quite similar. So it's kind of, you know, even with the NDA, you're not fully protected in that instance. Um, so it's, a, you know, it's a sensitive topic. And actually, this goes back to the NDA discussion that we had um, a few weeks ago, which is, you know, once you start, you know, once you're going to begin a serious conversation, you need to get an NDA in place with this potential acquirer. And part yep. of the NDA, and I think I mentioned it, I must have, you I should have, is, no. is a non-solicit. So they can't come and pick off your employees. So that would be a huge protection. And if they did, obviously, you could sue them for a huge amount of money and, you know, and maybe even, you know, destroy the, the hiring of that person and get the, you know, like you can, there's a lot of remedies that would take place, you know, at a minimum, you would get a huge, you could be eligible for a huge compensation from that party. So it's, you know, that's something to take into account, but valuing, you know, an engineer, the quality, as you know, well, you know, much better than me, the quality of an engineer varies so much, you know, and it's, yeah. So it's really in the eye of the acquirer, what they see in that situation. And again, that's much more with companies that don't have, you know, a great business going, you know, because then once the great business is going, it gets much more focused on that. So yeah, uh, the reason I brought it up, it's because um, uh, whenever I go to, to San Francisco, you know, I have a lot of conversation with uh, the M&A people of big companies. And I remember two, three years in, in a row, I was visiting the, the Google office. Basically, the guy running M&A at Google is like, oh, we buy a company every week. Yeah. Just because we <laughs> want to have the founders. Yeah. Right? And so my question was like, so you're telling me that every week you acquire a company just because you want to have the founders and you just scale the business and, and fire everybody else? And like, yeah. So that yeah. whole, don't be evil at Google. I, I don't know. Like the perception of evil is a little bit... Ah. Yeah. Anyways, anyways, let's go back to ne negotiation because I think that team valuation deserves an entirely new um, episode. So uh, <laughs> let, let's put it off for now. But like, so let's go back to negotiation, right? Because yeah. I wanted to know do's and don'ts, right? Because sure. we've all heard about, you know, companies in the middle of the negotiation with the potential acquirers, they did something that made everybody withdraw their offers, right? Yeah. They made something dodgy. They did like they made a mistake or somebody said something they shouldn't be saying. There was a, there's a famous um, company here in Barcelona that was uh, to be acquired by Seat or Ford or Volkswagen. I don't remember. They got an offer. They got, I think it was not even an offer, not even a formal offer, but they went to the competitors. So like, you know, you know they were going to be acquiring uh, us for this valuation and, and, they were like, okay, let me talk to the CEO. Like CEO to CEO, yeah. they spoke. They're like, not really. And so um, that ended up frustrating and 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 sending everything. Yeah, to that's health, that's right? a very dangerous thing to do. Something you what's know, you take just yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I mean, what's the take on that? So going to the competitor, you receive a good offer from one company. Yeah. Why not reach out to the competitor and hear? You know, maybe they've got a better offer. Maybe just the fact that you say, hey, I have an offer from your competitor, makes them excited about your company like no we don't want the competitor to get them so we want them for ourselves yeah. which actually happens um so it's you know it's there's some risk involved and if your only offer or your by far your best offer is from one company going to their competitor you know there's going to be risk in that especially if your line is if you say exactly who the competitor is that's very risky if you just say hey, I've got an offer from one of your main competitors. There's That's still some risk there because they can make a few phone calls. They can kind of call all their main competitors, say, hey, do you know anything about this company? And, and, and every company is unique. So some companies would know all the, you know, would, would have that comfortable relationship with their competitor to make those phone calls and others wouldn't. So others would just kind of, you know, either believe you or not believe you and go from there. 
but you're taking a risk either way, because if they have that comfortable relationship and are going to make those phone calls, then you're kind of getting exposed and, you know, they're going to find out exactly what the, you know, well, it depends what the, the company wants to, to share, but they're going to learn a lot of information, you know, maybe not the exact offer price. It depends. It's totally out of your hands at that point. You're really just kind of gambling. So it's, so we actually had a situation that won't say which one where it worked out well that one of our clients wanted to do that. We had the client had, we did a, a, you know, I think a good process for them. They had seven written acquisition offers on the table. So, you know, and, and a few were low kind of crappy offers, but they had, you know, four or five that were in a solid high range, you know, that they were more than happy to accept. So they, in one of the situations, they went to the competitor and I don't, I don't remember exactly why they chose this company because all five had competitors that they could have gone to. But I think the founder, you know, I had conversations with him about it. I think he had it in his mind that it was kind of a contentious situation with these companies. So with the company that gave the offer and their competitors, there was kind of a, you know, a fierce rivalry and, and kind of an animosity be, between the companies. So we, you know, we, we explained, you know, the risks and, you know, if you want to do this, that's fine. At least we have great backup options, you know, but here's our advice for how to do it in the best way. So he went to the competitor and the competitor actually gave a better offer than all of them. Oh, wow. And so the company ended up getting sold to the, to the competitor. So that was, oh, wow. yeah. Happy ending. <laughs> yeah. In this case. So that was a happy ending. Um, but, but keep in mind, they had many backup options, you know, so it's kind of the risk was already much lower because there were so many good offers on the table in the offer that they got from the competitor wasn't head and shoulders above everyone else. It was the best, but it wasn't like 30% better than the second best offer. It was, you know, maybe 5% better. They ended up going with it like, Hey, 5% is still fantastic, you know, and when you're in the multi multi-million range, so, you know, that's terrific. So so yeah, it worked out well in that situation. But again, they had lots of backup options. You know, they were in a very solid position. If you just had one and you went to the competitor, you know, one, you go to the competitor and and, and especially if you say who the competitor is, you know, you're putting yourself at very high risk. But even if you don't, if you just say it's a yeah. direct competitor, then they can call them all. And maybe they call them all and they find out, you know, you're bluffing or yeah. <laughs> you're just exaggerating, you know, and they can call you back and say, well, I don't think you have an offer from one of my competitors. You know, I just called all five of our main competitors and yeah. none of them gave you an offer. So it's, you know, or they called all five and they found out one did get an offer and that you're shopping it around. So then that, that person is furious, you know, who gave you the good offer is could be very yeah. angry because you're shopping it to the competitors, which is a very, you know, perceived as disloyal, negative way to treat somebody who made a very nice offer for your company. So it's That's a good point. That's a good point. And you as a founder, because like how is the how is the coordination between Yemeni boutique who would be spearheading this process, right? Yeah. But then the founder can help, right? Say you know, um for instance in the case of a founder having previously worked at a potential acquirer, right? Um yeah. because let, let's say like you work for you used to work for Cisco. Um in the case of Zoom, I think uh, it's actually Cisco employees, right? And they're about to sell and Cisco is one of the potential, or maybe it's not in the initial bidding, but yeah. it's like, look, I used to work at Cisco. I'm held in very high esteem there. I can reach out to them, right? How to coordinate these two, um, the, the two Rolodexes between, you know, the M&A boutique and the founders and how to avoid impacting twice the same company because that yeah. might sound a little bit, sketchy or yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, a, that's a great question yeah i think if you do double contact it, it more looks unprofessional than anything else All right mm -hmm. and that's you know so having a really good communication you, you know that having, an excel spreadsheet or how do you use yeah, it? yeah, yeah it's just totally transparent and you know at the beginning before we begin reaching out to anybody we we talk with them and we you know we have a list of the highest potential really all of them you know kind of usually we do it in tiers kind of these are the highest potential medium lower but you never know what the lower so let's not count them out and yeah you know in a common way that we do it is kind of who has the best relationship so sometimes the usually yes. the ceo will have a relationship with some usually not most so it's 
and usually, you know, we have a better relationship with most just because we're constantly doing these, these yeah. situations. So it's, so I would say most frequently is that we end up having the conversations with more than 90%, I would say often more than 95%, but often the CEO has a great relationship with some, you know, and, and I mean, a, you know, really strong relationship and they can, you know, if they're, it's up to them, you know, we're still happy to do the reach out if that's what they prefer, or if they, you know, if they're open and willing to do it, you know, fine, you go ahead and that's terrific. We'll coach you on, you know, what to say, what not to say. And we can even be present on some of the calls, some of the calls, maybe it's better that we're not present so that it's, you know, because when there's somebody else on the call, it's, you know, it's a little less natural maybe. So it's, so he can do some on his own, you know, with kind of our, coaching in advance others if he wants us on the call just listening or maybe just to interject a point when it's necessary we're happy to do that so it's you know that's kind of the dynamic i would say what's the technology involved in this are you using uh, google spreadsheets are you fancy enough to use their table or <laughs> what's what are you using there well there's lots shared of contacts and coordination yeah so i mean it's pretty simple technology for this. You know, we can just use, you know, Google, Google spreadsheets is very common. It's, it's really kind of up to the company. So we, you know, yeah. we can kind of suggest, you know, ways that we do it, but many times they'll say, no, you know, we, you know, we had one client, everything's got to be, we use the Google um, suite of products. So kind of everything yeah. was done on the Google suite of products, you know, all the calls and actually I switched over. So I dropped my zoom account after that because I, at the Google one is basically included with the, if you have a business Google account, you're yeah. paying for the, it's included. And it's, I thought it was as good or, you know, in some ways easier than zoom. So I, because of that client, I dropped zoom. That was not too long ago, but anyways, so, you know, the clients have preferences and we try to cater to them. We'll suggest, you know, some good alternatives and they, you know, they pick, you know, their favorite further down the line. There is a lot, you know, there is some more advanced, somewhat expensive technology used that's more in the due diligence phase when you have a virtual data room and you know the clients always pay for those so i'm not exactly sure how much they cost but we kind yeah. of suggest you know one or two that that we like and then they end up picking the one that that they you know that they prefer which is you know, totally fine but the virtual data room is much more for um for the for the due diligence phase and kind of, you know, that, that part of the phase for the, the part that we're talking about right now, it's much more kind of, you know, we'll suggest a few things and the client can decide where we try to be flexible. So. Perfect. Let's circle back to having all the offers on the table, right? What yeah. happens in the worst case scenario in which people start or companies start withdrawing their offers, right? Do others have got visibility about this or you only see it as the founder and the, M&A boutique, who happens to know what's going on, how many table, uh, how many offers are on the table, what's a, an acceptable number of offers to have, more or less, to be on the safe side? Yeah, so many different questions there. So I, the first part, I, I wasn't I'm sure. What, what you, <laughs> <laughs> I, the first part, I wasn't 100% sure on, so maybe we'll clarify that first. I think you said, like, who's, it was kind of like the idea, who's, who's culpable or who's guilty, you know, if, if like one of the offers goes away, was that kind of the question or like, I know, want to say like, I don't know what the, like the, the idea I wanted to convey here is who knows what's going on. Like uh, do um, all the companies have got visibility to, to how many offers you've got or not really. Right. No, that's totally up to you. And, okay. you know, so, you know, you don't have to share and, and it's and getting back to the previous discussion, yeah. about reaching out to the competitor. So generally speaking, you don't share who the authors are from. You know, I would how say many almost, you've got, almost right? never. You can share how many you've got. Will they believe you? You know, maybe not. Because, yeah. you know, because obviously it's your, in your interest to make it seem like there's an exciting competitive Yeah, you wouldn't say I've got out. 45 offers, right? But you would have like, what, you solid you, five? What you definitely wouldn't say is we have no offers. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Because then, then it I, looks I, like I could have come up with a scenario where that so. would work out, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we have no offer. Nobody's interested at all. You'll be the first one if you're silly enough to make an offer. So yeah, you don't <laughs> say that. You definitely don't say that. Um, so, solely planned. So yeah, like kind of how many offers do you say? You know, I think being there's a certain amount of kind of the people you're talking to somehow kind of 
can see what's true and what's not true. Yeah. So when you're explaining things, and I think part of this is just being a really good communicator and, and trying to have a certain level of honesty and sincerity with the parties you're speaking with. So when you're speaking and, you know, and you're communicating with them and you say, Hey, you know, we actually have some urgency at this point, you know, in the last couple of weeks, a couple of offers have come in, you know, and you even, maybe you get into some details about those and share some insights and then they really, you know, then it's, it's much more believable than if you just say, yeah, we've got seven offers. Do you want to be offer number eight? And also think about, mm. and if you are bluffing, whether it's, whether it's the truth or the not, you know, not the truth, is it good to say that you have 10 offers? Because then they're kind of just thinking, oh, this is a highly competitive process. You know, if I, if I win this deal, I'm going to be, have, I'm going to have to pay a really high price. A lot of buyers, you know, are looking for a good deal. So they don't want somebody, you know, with, it's kind of, it's a, it's a balance. So it's kind of, they don't want somebody with no offers. Cause then it's like, nobody's interested in this. Why should I be interested? It's a, you know, it's a yeah. fool who thinks this is not a piece of junk if they have no offers and I'm the first one. But if they have like 10 or 15 or 20 written offers, verbal offers, oh, wow. it's well then up, it's man. kind of, then it's kind of like, whoa. I mean, if one, if I get involved here, I'm probably going to be wasting a ton of time. What's the chance yep. of me winning this Two, If I do win this, I'm going to be paying a really high price because it means that I outbid 15 other parties. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, so it, there's a, you know, there's a certain balance you want to have there. I, but getting back to the point I was making. So early, you don't want to be too early or too late to the party, right? <laughs> no one wants to, it's kind of like an investment. It's it's very difficult to get the lead investor in a round. Once you get it, everybody just, you know, yeah, gates. So it's like, exactly. oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a great deal. It's like, dude, you didn't want to invest because we, we didn't have a, an investor uh, leading the round, right? And now it seems like everybody wants to join the party just because, you know, Creandum or first round capital has joined, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Okay, so there's no real incentive to being the first, right? No, well, no, no, not true. M &A. So there is incentive to be the first. So getting back to our discussion a few weeks ago about, you know, private equity. So private equities are constantly looking for these yeah. undiscovered gems. You know, they, okay. they want to make an offer where nobody else has they obviously want it to be on the low side, you know, they want to get a great deal. So <laughs> what's their incentive to look for these kind of companies? Or so because they get a great price. Or, or, so if, if I go to a private equity, okay. they know, they know Mike, Mike is going to bring something, you know, or, you know, my company is going to bring something with it's in competition. So they're speaking with many strategic yeah. acquirers, you know, this company is going to sell gotcha, for that's a, high, a really good point. It's going to yeah. sell for a really high price, you know, high price, yeah. hopefully a really high price. Whereas if they can poach something on their own, if they, you know, approach mm. a, a startup or a tech company and get that conversation going, and maybe the founder has no idea, you know, what his company's worth and, you know, and they make an offer and the founder thinks, point. wow, you know, 10 million, that's, that's outstanding, you know, like maybe it's a very unique technology, you know, so they can't really talk to their peers to have an idea you know, what their company might be worth, or maybe they've just been so focused on their company, they never spent a good amount of time doing this. So anyways, you know, they get this offer for 10 million, you know, maybe they could have sold for 40 million to somebody mm -hmm. else. So it's kind of, but this, this is what PEs, you know, the, a major part of their businesses, some more than others. So some PEs are more like strategics. And there's also PEs that, you know, are looking for more strategic fits with their portfolio. But a lot of PEs are, are constantly contacting uh, founders of startups and tech companies in order to make this, you know, get this great deal purchase so that they can buy low, you know, buy very low and sell much higher, you know, five years later, something like that. Okay. And at so, this point yeah, so, of the conversation, oh, sorry, I broke you up. No, no, no. So that's kind of, yeah. So that's, you know, it goes back to our previous conversation and many strategics do this as well. By strategic, I just mean, you know, a corporation like any other, like a Google, Facebook, um, you know, any, any corporation in the, in the tech industry, Uber, whatever. Um, so we call them strategics for whatever reason, but anyway, some, many strategics do this as well. Uh, but private equities are much, you know, much more famous for this. Okay. Yeah, now I get it. It's a really good point that they want to buy things at a discount just because it's basically a huge their, discount. Their model. That's their yeah. business. I mean, that's how they make fortunes. So when yeah. they buy, so when they buy at a competitive price, you know, they may still make a good return. You know, the company grows; they can sell it for a decent amount. You know, a higher yeah. price later, but typically they can make a much higher 
uh, you know, if they if they buy the same company for you know sixty percent lower value when it's not in competition, you know, they make a massive return in those cases. Yeah, the company I used to work for before creating Marspace was acquired last year by a private equity. I was like, dude, this is a consultancy. Why did private equity get there? Where usually they are now going into massive uh, consumer markets, right? They bought a lot of music festivals. They bought a lot of, you know, um, B2C platforms. But why a consultancy, right? Maybe because they saw an opportunity of selling it to bigger, even bigger player, right? Um, yeah, PEs, really quick, just on that. Yeah, so sure, PEs sure. specialize in tons of different things. So there's PEs specialized in, in a lot of different areas. Some are only technology focused. So some PEs exclusively buy technology companies. I would say most PEs, that, that do buy tech companies also buy non-tech, you know, other industries. But I just wanted to comment on that, that there's a lot of specialization between those types of buyers. Okay. Um, now that's a good point. And another thing that requires a separate episode, I'm not going to go into that. But <laughs> what re- when does it come into play? Due diligence, right? When's the right moment when you undergo a due diligence? I, my, I think it's when you start the real conversations of the potential acquired, right? Once you have ruled out the rest of the of the offers, then you accept one. Um, is that when you get audited? Is that when you get the uh, to do the due diligence or is it before? When does that come into play? So uh, due diligence is a term that gets used in many ways. So like right. the most typical, you know, the most hardcore, well, I would say, you know, the, if somebody just says, oh, I did an M&A process and during the due diligence phase, this happened, usually what they're return- referring to is between, is after they accepted the LOI, yeah. but before the final purchase was made. But Perfect. many yeah. other people, you know, many other acquirers call kind of the discovery phase where they're learning about the company also due diligence. And the mm-hmm. way that you know, I've heard it broken down, which I like. I've heard it broken down ways that I don't agree with, but the way that I think is intuitive and makes sense to me is to call, you know, call the first part kind of pre-LOI, before the LOI. So they they reach out to you and obviously they need to learn about your business, you know, more than what's uh, public on the website in order to see if they want to make an offer and, and, and also to see what, if they do want to make an offer at what level. So they, you know, so you have many conversations before the LOI so that they can figure out if they want to make an offer and if so, at what level. And a lot of people call that kind of business due diligence. You know, they're, they're doing due diligence on the, on the business, on the value of the business, you know, how interesting and exciting this business is, you know. So that's, some people call that business due diligence. And then the Correct. second part, after you sign the LOI and move forward, some people will call that kind of confirmatory due diligence. So, all right, I learned right. a ton about the business you know, it's exciting. Maybe, you know, we did some tech demos as well. So we got to see the tech stack, you know, how the, how the whole technology functions, you know, pre LOI. And we got to see, you know, the financials and the forecasts. We got to see information about the customers, the prior churn rates, lots of other things. This is all pre LOI. It's all about the business. We need to see what the value of this in our opinion is. And then, so that's, you know, business due diligence, some people call that, but then the major due diligence which is usually much more time consuming is after the LOI and that due diligence is, it really is confirmatory. I think confirmatory due diligence, I think is a good way to think about it because what they're doing, they want to confirm that everything you told them before the offer is true so that then they're comfortable enough to sign, to create and sign the final definitive acquisition or merger document. What happens then? What happens then? Like once you you choose a path, once you choose a company, and yeah. you start the due diligence. Let's say like you complete the due diligence because this is, this is too complex. We're not going to go into it. Yeah. Um, but what other processes are there before the final you know merging document? And how long does this process take? Again, many questions and just one question. Sure, I'll do it. We're already fifty minutes in or forty minutes in, so I'll try to cover yeah. you know in an efficient way. So one quick thing I will mention on the due diligence, you know, just kind of continuing from before, it is confirmatory in the main categories, just so you have some idea, kind of, you know, technology, legal, financial. Um, So the financial due diligence, they're confirming, you know, with professional auditors that everything you said that happened before, all the financials you showed them are actually true. You know, they're confirming that everything in the financial situation that you presented is the way it is and the company's very financially healthy. In the legal due diligence, they're mostly looking at contracts. 
So they want to see, are all the employee contracts, you know, well done? Did the company do this well? Are they at risk of lawsuits from past or current employees? Did the, did the employees sign confidentiality agreements? Do, you know, did many aspects like this for the technology, they're looking deeper into the tech stack. You know, they're, um, one, they want to, with the programmers also, they want to see, do, does the company own all of the technology? You know, in the, the contracts, idea. yeah, with, yeah. So. With, in the contracts with the programmers, is there something where, you know, some agency mm -hmm. says that they have rights to the code or is this all yours? You know, they did the work and now it's all yours. So they look at a lot of contracts like that. Also, they'll look at often, well, almost always kind of the integratability from your the technology of the yeah. company they want to acquire with their technology. How difficult is it going to be to connect and integrate these technologies? And that's, you know, that's another aspect. And there's always some degree of risk with that because they'll think about that pre-LOI, but they can't really do as much depth of work on that until post LOI to really discover that. So that can create issues between yep. um, LOI to, to final agreement. If they, you know, if they find out that the integration is way more difficult than expected and, and it's a sensitive area too, because they can be kind of, who knows how true it is, you know? So the acquirer can say, cause this, this also can be a reason or excuse for the acquirer to try to lower the price a little bit. So there's also this going on too. So they could say, ah, you know, we think it's going to be, you know, substantially more difficult to integrate than we thought. Therefore, it's going to slow down the benefits of the acquisition. Therefore, we need to lower the price by 20% or 10%, whatever. So then, you know, so and how true is this? So it's impossible to know. So it's kind of, so that, that is, can be a very sensitive aspect that is always some point of risk, you know, between LOI and closing. So that's, you know, that's the only thing I wanted to mention on due diligence to the yep. definitive agreement. The definitive agreement is, you know, the definitive sale agreement. You know, sometimes it's called definitive merger agreement, sometimes SPA, sometimes, you know, it has many different names depending on the situation, but it's really just the definitive agreement, you know, maybe a hundred pages more or less, sometimes quite a bit more explaining, you know, the whole purchase and sale. There's many different sections in this, you know, things going over, price over, you know, permanency, reps and warranties is an important one. So that's kind of the, the, the shareholders and founder of the company being acquired, kind of assuring certain facts about their company. They're saying, we promise to you that these things are true. So then later, if, if one of those things is not true after the sale happens, then the, you know, the shareholder or founder can be somewhat liable for that and the acquirer can come back and say, hey, you, you said that this was true. We found out that it's not true. And then a lawsuit without, you know, there could be a, uh, you know, a pre-lawsuit. Um, oh, wow. What do they call it? You know, when they make a, a deal, but pre-lawsuit, but there could be a lawsuit. And, and then the, the share, the selling shareholder has to pay money to the acquirer, things like that. So there's a lot of different aspects to this, you know, long document. And, and that's really it. I mean, it's kind of, you know, I would say LOI, due diligence, the confirming, coming to the final agreement in a, you know, a big difference between the final agreement and the LOI is just much more detail. The LOI is like the big item. So it's kind of price, you know, structure, although sometimes it's kind of high level on the structure, mm -hmm. um, exclusivity period, which some people call no shop period, which means that you're not allowed to talk to anybody else. So this is something right. we didn't cover on this call, which if you want, we can talk about for a few minutes. Sure. Uh, I think you can go. Yeah. So we got 10, 10 more minutes. So it's okay. Fine. Yeah. So one of the key aspects, one of the key clauses on the LOI is called the no shop or exclusivity, which basically yeah. what this means is that if, if the selling company signs the LOI, then they're not allowed to talk to any other potential acquirers during this period of time. Yeah. Why would, why would the selling company agree to that? Well, it's obviously, it's not good for the selling company. It's good for the buying company. Why does the buying company have, you know, enough leverage to demand of this? The reason why is that they have to invest a ton of money and time in this due diligence. So they're yeah. the one paying for this due diligence. It can be, you know, 60, 90 days, you know, it's different every time. Sometimes it can be a little less than 60 days. Sometimes it can be quite long, uh, but yeah. they're really going, they're digging deep. I, we've, we've worked on acquisitions where the due diligence team was more than 30 people. 
So you've got 30 people, you know, 40 people working full time during 90 days. It's incredibly expensive for the acquirer. So they say, hey, if we're if we're digging deep to see if we really want to buy your company for 40 million or whatever the price is, you know, we deserve that you're not shopping this thing around to other potential acquirers. Right. So it makes sense. Um, so, anyways, that's a key key but clause. Still, they can they can withdraw at any process, right? At any part of the process, because they say some they see something that something's not working, or maybe something they don't like, or yeah. So they can situation. So they lock you in for a while, but they can withdraw. Right? Yeah. So, so they lock you in, but they can withdraw or they can lower it. So one of the key things to negotiate when you're negotiating the LOI. So when you receive the LOIs, it's not just, all right, I've got four LOIs and that's it. I just, you got to negotiate as well. You got to yeah. negotiate those. Exactly. So you can obviously negotiate on price, but a key thing that, you know, we almost always negotiate unless it looks great at the beginning, but it usually doesn't is, you know, this exclusivity period. So, you know, shortening, shortening it as much as possible is obviously very good, right. but also, um, but also you can make it based on like milestones. So kind of, you know, they have to, you know, complete certain aspects of the due diligence um, by certain dates. And if they, if they don't, then the exclusivity ends and we're able to, you know, we're able to speak with other potential acquirers. So making it both shorter and milestone based is in the strong best interests of the selling company. What's the what's one or two clauses that only rookie entrepreneurs would accept? Something that you know, seasoned <laughs> entrepreneurs when they see on the LOIs, they're like, "Fuck no, I'm not getting this." Yeah, so I mean, this exclusivity period is one that almost okay. nobody really understands too well, or they just they just don't know what the norms are. So it's kind of. Yeah, you know, right. they get a they get an LOI and it says 80 days of exclusivity, and, and they're like, "Oh, 80 days is really nothing, know. right?" <laughs> yeah, they're like, ah, "Makes sense to me." You know, they're going to be investing in what's the lowest their, you can get it to? Wow, well, I mean, there's no lowest. Yeah, I mean, right. 30 days would be quite low. Uh, but I, right. you know, you you also want it to be two. Everything you do in this, you want to be kind of in good faith in two way because the more it seems. You don't want to be too one-sided. You, you need to be doing things in, in a you know kind of a partnership way. Obviously, you're representing your interests, and you want it to be certainly not negative for you, but as fa favorable yeah. as possible. But you also don't want to be unrealistic and demanding things that are way off market. So this is another thing an entrepreneur you know who doesn't have experience in this they could say no you know I'm not giving more than 15 days of exclusivity in every acquirer. Oh, wow. Acquire, you know, I'm not saying this has ever happened, but it, you know, it could easily happen. Every acquirer would say that's ridiculous. You know, this is a joke. I'm not going to do this process with this guy. He has, he's demanding outrageous things, and he has no idea what he's talking about. So it's kind of all right. You know, we know kind of what's the norm, what's in the market, you know, you know the know, what's, what's reasonable, yeah. and you know, and and what's reasonable but very good for our end because the range of reasonability is is very wide. You know, and and if they you know, and I would say many times, you know, if, especially if they're not dealing with a professional advisor, you know, they're going to try to push things in their favor. Why not? Who wouldn't? You know, I mean, it's kind of, you know, if I know I'm just, you know, dealing with a, a CEO or, you know, somebody from the board in this process, then, you know, why not, you know, make it as favorable for myself? So, yeah. so it's kind of, so that's, you know, I think quite normal on the side of the buyer in those situations. And how about the the um, the permanence clauses, right? Once your company gets acquired, usually part of the deal is that the founding team or the C levels they get to stay in the company. They have to stay in the company, yeah. in the acquiring company for a while. Um, which, for what I've heard, I think that in Spanish law is not really legal to have permanence clauses. Yeah. But then they they sort of rephrase that into permanence bonuses, right? If you say here or vesting periods, right? So yeah, exactly. how does that work? Uh, how can so you negotiate exactly, that down? It's exactly what you just said. So it's, you know, you tie it to compensation. So it's a, you know, it's a free country. People are, you know, pretty much able to do what they want to do. You know, you can't tie, you know, shackle somebody yeah. and make them go to the office every day. So you have to make it attractive for them. So it's, you know, it's typically a bonus, you know, maybe if they want the CEO to stay for two years, maybe they give, you know, 25% of the bonus at end of year one and seven, you know, and the 75% yeah. rest, the remaining part at the end of year two. So that's, you know, that's the common way to do it. And, and that's, you know, I would say that's the most common way to do it. And it's see, Oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. 
No, and I, and, and I was just going to say, so like the CEO, for example, may get a large, a lot of it is the balance between how much of the compensation they get on signing, you know, closing day of the transaction versus how much is delayed for these one and two year bonuses. So obviously, you know, most CEOs and, and you know, on the selling side, you want to shift it so that more compensation is, is, is at the sale of the company versus one or two years later. So they're kind of, you know, finding that balance and it's not... It's not easy and there's no, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say there's any cookie cutter way to do it. It's really just conversations and, you know, getting it as much in your favor as possible. Yeah. And one thing we didn't cover here, but I think it would be interest, uh, interesting to, to talk about it for a couple of minutes would be how to manage this situation with the board, right? Because the board might have a different opinion on whose um, offer should you take, right? Yeah. Than yours as a founder, right? How's the negotiation here? Who does the M&A boutique side with? Uh, yeah, so this is very, you know, this can be challenging. And even sometimes somebody's not on the board per se, but they have, you know, rights. They have some way that they can either block the transaction or they can cause such a disturbance that they can, you know, effectively destroy the transaction, even if they don't have the right to do so. So it's, oh, wow. you know, so working, it's, it's challenging and we've worked on transactions like this. And fortunately in, in situations like this, you know, it's worked out well in the ones we've done. Um, but it's, it's, it's very challenging, you know, I mean, people are, and usually, I mean, the biggest issue that we've seen so far about this is not just, oh, I'm a board member and I prefer, you know, XYZ company as opposed to ABC company. It's much more often like, a board member or shareholder will think that they should have, that they should get more compensation, basically that they, you know, maybe they only own 3% of the shares or 15%, but you know, for whatever reason, and people are, people are amazing at creating stories in their own minds that they believe that they deserve X percent more than what they, you know, what they're entitled to as far as their, you know, on paper, their shareholding. So, you know, sometimes it gets, you know, it can be, it often gets negotiated with these people. Um, even if they, you know, sometimes it's just ignore the person or then you know, that's certainly one option if they don't have the power to destroy the transaction. But if they do have the power to destroy the transaction, you know, you almost definitely need to negotiate with them and come to some middle ground or, and even if they don't have the power to destroy the transaction, they can be very, they can make the company look really bad. You know, they can, they know a lot of inside information. They know who the acquirer is, especially if they have board, if they're either on the board or have, or, or are privy to board information, you know, they know who the acquirer is. They know lots of information about the company. Maybe they can, you know, you know, dig up some dirt from the past about the company, share it with the acquirer. They can do many different things to try to destroy the transaction So even these people without, you know, necessarily the power um, to do it just because, you know, they can make threats and, and oftentimes the board will try to negotiate with them. And, and depending on how radical the person is, you know, I think it's often a good idea. This sounds like some companies you have dealt with in the past. <laughs> serious issues there. <laughs> Two quick questions to wrap yeah. this up, Mike. Uh, the first one is, have you noticed any difference between pre-pandemic and now, like, because I assume most negotiations right now happen on Zoom, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Differences That's that the most obvious thing. thing. Yeah, what, what happened there? Did you notice anything different? It's like still all the same. No, I mean, it's pretty much the same. Even, you know, even before the pandemic, a large percentage of the conversations were on Zoom, you know, I mean, because most- I assume that until LOI would be on Zoom maybe, but then post LOI, You yeah, but even post LOI, I would say most are on Zoom because right. usually the acquirers in a different geography, you know, and, and many mm -hmm. times they'll come visit the company, but that, you know, that visit may only be for a couple, couple days, you know, maybe. Days. For yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. You know, a long visit might be like a week, you know, but wow. yeah, it might yeah. be one or two days, you know, and, and obviously during those, those few days, you know, we're in person and having great conversations, you know, building the rapport and, you know, trying to you know, trying to make it very positive from a learning perspective for them, you know, to learn about the company and get all their questions answered, but also kind of on a personal social level um, to, yeah, just have nice dinners and have some social aspects too, that it's not all business, but also, you know, relationships and human interaction, you know, that's, that's key. 
So I, I think that's the biggest difference is just that, you know, a lot of that has been removed and why it's not, um, it's not hugely important. Well, it, it's important, you know, the more, the sooner we can get the human interaction part back, the better. Yeah. Um, but, but the, the good thing is that because it's so international, you know, these, these M&A transactions, the acquirer is, is usually in another geography, almost always in our experience in another, at least another city, probably another country that, you know, more, there's a high percentage of the stuff that's even pre-pandemic was done on Zoom and, you know, one of the other, you know, virtual uh, call systems. What's a good book that we can learn from about M&E? What's the best book you would recommend? Uh, or content. Can be a podcast, can be like a documentary, I don't know. Like, I mean, one of the most famous is a, is a book called Barbarians at the Gate. That's kind of, that's more like RJR, Nabisco. It's in the 1980s. It's not really technology, but it's a very famous, there aren't like a ton of super famous M&A books, to be honest. They're not, right? It's at the Gate is probably the most famous one. I mean, I, personally, like the books that I love, you know, Peter Thiel, Zero to One. I'm sure you've read that book. You know, that's yeah. a phenomenal book. And, you know, it's not M&A focused, it's much more entrepreneur focused. Yeah. But there are, you know, a lot of, I think what he talks about in there is applicable as well. Um, there must be a book that I'm not thinking of right now. I, I read lots of M&A books, but they're more like dry books. You know, it's kind yeah. of, it's not really. Like Something some, that if you're in the field, then like, like yeah. Yeah, like I would yeah. recommend it to like, you know, maybe somebody who wants to get into the field or who's working with me, you know, a junior person, but not, you know, it's not somebody I would recommend to a, something I'd recommend to a founder necessarily. I think like, yeah, like a Barbarians at the Gate is probably the most classic M&A book, but it's from the 1980s and it's not technology. <laughs> All right. So anyway, going to check it out. I haven't, yeah. I haven't heard about it. Okay. Last question. This is something we get from Star Brian, but because you answered the, the, the fuck up in the previous episode, you get yeah. this question too as a bonus is everybody has got a useless superpower, something you do exceptionally well, but it's fucking <laughs> right. What's yours? I wish I watched, you know, more of your podcast. So I knew these questions <laughs> in advance. My no, that's, that's a part of it. It's like, the, it needs to be organic. It needs to be in the moment. Some people come up with real quick things and really good answers, like on the spot. And we never prefer Right. Uh, but let me think for just one second, because I honestly, nothing's coming to me right now. There's tons of things that I have. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to give you one of mine because I've got like 70. <laughs> right. And the other day, I the other day I tweeted about this. It's like, I don't know why I, I always schedule startup grind events at the same time as the Barca matches. Right. The Barca football yeah. matches it's like how it's like once a month. Right. And always <laughs> yeah. every month religiously when I do my my startup grind event, there's a Barca match going on. Yeah. And that's a useless superpower because like it's got no use for that. Right. But, All right. I'll give you one. I, I thought of one. So I don't know if it's a, su a superpower, but I may bend it slightly just because nothing else is coming to my mind. But I would say um, I would say ironing shirts is something that that and also kind of doing the laundry in general is something I find it kind of like meditative. <laughs> I find it like a, a meditative experience, like, you know, kind of hanging out is, the clothes. Or ironing the shirt, like I, I stop thinking about everything, and I, you know, and it's kind of, it's almost like meditation for me. It's like, you know, if I'm ironing a shirt, I'm not thinking about my problems. I'm just, you know, looking at that wrinkle and making it disappear. And it's kind of, I find it as like a therapeutic experience. So, funnily enough, I, I, I kind of like leave all that kind of stuff and like dishwashing and laundry, or whatever, for the end of the day. That's when yeah. I unwind from technology. Yeah, and I go offline and there's like a solid hour of me just like doing stuff around the house and, you know, washing the dishes and kind of yeah. like putting in order for me to unwind. So I think that's, uh, I'm on. Absolutely. The and certain things are better for me. So if my wife asked me to do, you know, hang out the clothes, I love doing that. I go outside on the balcony, you know, hanging the clothes or ironing a shirt, you know, it's, it's wonderful. I, at the same time, I don't want to be spending hours on that stuff. Like the right <laughs> amount of time for me is like 10, 15 minutes doing that. And then I'm done. So okay, more than 15 you minutes. You don't have a lot of, a, a lot of shirts then. <laughs> Mike, yeah, right. so to wrap it up, what kind of companies can contact you? How can you help them? Like what's the. Yeah. So really anything in technology, you know, we work with, we've done a, a lot of FinTech recently um, worked with many different, you know, kind of the major FinTech companies in, in Spain, not all of them, but many of them. Um, also, you know, SaaS, you know, a lot of different SaaS companies in different verticals, 
um, internet companies. Um, you know, I, I would say like within technology, the ones that we don't do are more like kind of, you know, biotech, you know, that's kind of, it has technology in its name, but I, I think of that as very different, you know, so kind of the traditional technologies, SaaS is probably the most common, although it could be platform as a service, um, you know, any other type of software as a service type company um, and tons within kind of verticals like fintech has been our most active, although we've done a lot in internet as well. Perfect. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks a Thank lot, Alex. All right. See you later. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?